0: Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Supplemental, The Making of a Monk, Athanasius and the Life of Antony. I am so excited for this week's supplemental episode. We get to talk about one of the most important texts of the 4th century. This is a text that brings together all of the themes that we have been talking about in this podcast. Theology, power, charisma, monks, and polemic. That's right, friends. Today, we get to talk about Athanasius' famous book, The Life of Antony. One of the stories of the 4th century concerns the rise of monasticism as a form of Christian piety and as an alternative power structure to the power embodied by bishops. As we move into the later half of the 300s, monastic communities are well established enough that people start to turn to them for wisdom in the midst of the Christological controversy. And people just turn to them in general. All of the Cappadocian Fathers had some experience of a monastic lifestyle. Athanasius got to know the monks really well during his numerous exiles, and all across the empire, when bishops seemed prideful, caught up in material success, people turned to the charismatic authority of the monks as a counterweight. They were fascinated by them. They wanted to know about monks. They wanted to receive counsel from them. Athanasius wrote The Life of Antony in response to this demand. And so, this book is actually what Athanasius was most known for in his day. His two other works, On the Incarnation and Orations Against the Arians, are more theologically significant, and so we talked about them in the main episodes of our story. But The Life of Antony was the bestseller in his day. There were plenty of Christians who didn't really care about the Nicene controversy, but knew and loved Athanasius because of this little volume. And it's easy to see why they loved it so much antony the great also sometimes called anthony the great when you anglicize his name but we're going to keep it as antony well antony was a charismatic superstar of the fourth century he was one of the most respected elders of the egyptian desert monastics and he was also very good friends with athanasius we've seen him come to athanasius's help a couple of times in our story to preach against the arian heresy and to offer athanasius sanctuary in the desert during those many Many exiles. I really cannot emphasize how often Athanasius got exiled. It is, it is something. Athanasius returned the favor by writing a glowing narrative of Antony's life and exploits. But just as crucially, Athanasius wrote a book that tapped into the public perception of what a monk was. A larger-than-life hero who endured desert deprivation and did battle with demons on the regular. In reading this text we learn quite a bit about Antony and quite a bit more about what the public imagined Antony to be. So let's dive right in. If Antony was the superhero of the 4th century then he needed a good superhero origin story and so his tale begins where most origin stories begin with tragically dead parents. Antony was born to a wealthy Egyptian family. His mother and father died when he was in his late teens which was on the early side of when a 4th century man could expect to lose his parents, but not out of the norm. When they died, they left him their considerable estate and the responsibility of caring for his younger sister. It was a moment of enormous importance for Antony. He had suddenly been thrust into adulthood with all its resources and all its responsibilities. He made a choice that would define the rest of his life and arguably would define a good deal of the next 1,600 years of monasticism. As he was pondering what to do with his life one day, he walked into a church in the middle of service. And he walked in just in time to hear the priest read Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. If you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Antony apparently felt in his heart that those words had been addressed directly to him. So he walked out of the church and did just that. He sold the whole family estate, gave the money to the poor, and went to follow Jesus. Even just in this first little story, we see Antony's character. When he reads the Bible, he reads it as though each verse was meant to apply to him, usually as literally as possible. If you have spent time in churches, you probably know that most pastors will tell you that Matthew chapter 19 verse 21 is not Actually telling everybody that they have to sell all their possessions You'll usually hear them say that the point of the story is not to get trapped by wealth Now those interpretations were as common in Antony's day as they are in ours and Antony surely would have heard them many many times He knew that many people would say Antony you don't need to go sell the farm just because of this verse Yet for Antony, Jesus' invitation to a life of radical poverty was not an allegory or hyperbole. It was a concrete reality that he could really choose. And so he chose it without bothering to ask first if it was sensible or practical. Because it was a very impractical decision in at least one way. Antony had a kid sister he was supposed to take care of. It would be one thing if he wanted to throw his wealth away and go live in the desert, but he has someone who depends on him for food and shelter. How was he supposed to do that now that he had sold the family estate? Well, fortunately, there happened to be a community of sworn virgins nearby. Antony placed his sister into their care, trusting that she would be nurtured until she reached the age of adulthood. This, by the way, is most likely a forerunner of what we would today call a nunnery or a convent, They're living in a city and don't appear to be secluded, so it's not exactly the same thing, but there probably is some kind of relationship. You will often hear Antony called the founder of desert monasticism, but that's actually kind of misleading. There were already people living monastic lifestyles well before Antony took his own vows. They are the ones who took care of his sister as he began his own ascetic journey. Now hold up a minute, you may be thinking. I'm still bothered by this. Antony goes out and sells the entire estate that belonged to him and his sister, then leaves her with a bunch of strangers, and we're supposed to think this guy is a moral exemplar? It's a good objection to raise, and it's one that points out an often overlooked fact, that parts of Christianity seem actively opposed to family values. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells us that he has not come to bring peace but division, and that families will be divided because of his ministry, Father against son, mother against daughter. In Matthew chapter 8, when a man asks Jesus to permit him to become a disciple once his father has passed, Jesus replies, Let the dead bury their dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. God's call demands absolute obedience, and that obedience is even more important than family obligations. Antony is a particularly stark example of this. He believes that Christ has called him to a life of poverty, and he doesn't let anything get in the way of that, even family obligations. It may distress us. We may think Antony could have handled his wealth differently. But for Antony, these simply would have been ways of avoiding God's direct and simple call. And if there is one thing that he was determined not to do, it was ignore that call. With his sister safely ensconced with that community of virgins, Antony set out to become a monk. At this point, most Egyptian monks lived in cities rather than in the desert. So Antony would go to a city, seek out a monk there with a good reputation, and present himself as a student. He would learn all he could about being holy and stuff from his new teacher, then move on to the next town to find a new master. Everyone loved him, and his holiness was apparent to all. But there was one person who was very unhappy with all of this. The devil. That's right, Old Scratch was terribly displeased to see a young man working so hard to be holy and righteous. So he began to attack Antony to see if he could get him off the straight and narrow. First, he filled Antony's mind with doubts about whether he was really cut out for the monastic life. When Antony held firm, the devil then put lustful thoughts into his mind. Athanasius tells us that the devil once took the form of a woman and imitated sex acts in front of Antony, but was still rebuffed by the young ascetic wonderkind. After some time, the devil tired of these attempts and appeared to Antony in the form of a small black child. He lamented to Antony, saying, Many I deceived, many I cast down, but now attacking you and your labors as I had many others, I proved weak. Antony supposedly replied, You are very despicable, then, for you are black-hearted and weak as a child. Henceforth I shall have no trouble from you, for the Lord is my helper, and I shall look down on mine enemies. Having thus told the devil to go to hell, Antony continued on his way until, in good superhero fashion, his old nemesis returned for another confrontation. By this time, Antony would have been around thirty-five years old and had taken on a more rigorous set of practices. He would eat just once every day, or even just every other day. His diet consisted of bread, salt, and water. That's it. He would stay up late at night in prayer, and often went the whole night without sleeping. When he did sleep, it was usually on the ground, occasionally on a mat if he felt like he needed it. He had also taken to going into the tombs at night to pray. The devil, apparently very irked at this, rustled up an army of demons to physically attack Antony. And so they charged him in the tomb and left him for dead, bloodied and scarred. However, it so happened that Antony's friend was coming by the next morning for one of their every-couple-of-day check-ups to bring Antony food. The friend took Antony back home and patched him up. Antony, undeterred by the last night's proceedings, decided to return to that very same tomb. One imagines him bloodied and bent in a spiritual boxing match with the devil, and as Satan lands haymaker after haymaker, the devil turns to the crowd to rejoice in their cheers. But Antony just says, Hey! Hey! I didn't hear no bell. And keeps on fighting. That scene is, of course, an exaggeration, but it's not much of one. According to the life, what Antony actually said was this. Here I am, Antony, I flee not from your stripes, for even if you inflict more, nothing shall separate me from the love of Christ. The devil, then realizing that mere physical injury wasn't going to cut it, got a bunch of his demons to shapeshift into various predators who roared and threatened to devour the ascetic. Antony was too weak from the past day's injuries to even stand up, but from the floor he called out, If there had been any power in you, it would have sufficed had one of you come. But since the Lord has made you weak, you attempt to terrify me by numbers. And a proof of your weakness is that you take the shapes of brute beasts. If you are able, and have received power against me, delay not to attack. But if you are unable, why trouble me in vain? For faith in our Lord is a seal and a wall of safety to us." That's a pretty sharp observation from a guy in terrible pain. He's essentially saying, Hey, Satan! If you could actually attack me, why haven't you done it already? You clearly have no power. And the devil had to concede that Antony had his number. He departed, yet again defeated by the ascetic sincerity of Antony, who was looking pretty great. Antony then spent the next 20 years in solitude, continuing to pray, fast, and generally practice the ascetical arts he had given his life to. He wasn't taking disciples, he wasn't founding a movement. In fact, He made his home in a ruined fort where he only saw visitors twice a year when they came to deliver him bread supplies. You have already heard a lot of stories that may sound far-fetched to modern ears, dear reader, but this one is the strangest to me. Apparently, Athanasius tells us, the Thebans had invented a kind of bread that could stay good for up to a whole year. So Antony got his two shipments of bread per year and was thus well stocked up for his prayer. How exactly this worked, I don't know. It might have had something to do with how the bread is stored or the climate. But in any case, the important thing is that Antony could continue to refine his craft in solitude, didn't have to interact with people more than a few times a year. For some monks, that level of solitude is the main attraction of monastic life. But God had different plans for Antony. At age 55, it was time for him to begin teaching others, and he did so in true superhero fashion. Some of Antony's friends apparently wanted to see him one day, so they came to the fort where he was living, and when he didn't answer their calls, they just wrenched the old doors off their handles to find him at prayer. And they were deeply and truly amazed by his anti-aging regimen. Athanasius tells us that he was lean but not emaciated, and his youthful appearance, well, he looked the same at 35 as he did at 55. Which, of course, means it's time for a word from today's sponsor. Okay, Benny, I, I just have to ask it. How do you achieve that youthful yet wise glow? What, what is it? Maybe you were just born with it? Oh boy, I was hoping you'd ask. You know, I don't entirely know myself, but maybe it's monastic self-denial. Monastic self-denial? Monastic self-denial. It's the all-new, all-natural way to keep your corrupted, weakened flesh glowing with the natural light of holiness. Big Beauty wants to sell you all kinds of toxic chemicals to slather on your face. They want to tell you your pores are too big, your pores are too small, you don't have enough pores, you have too many pores, you have too much oil. I know, it's just, it's just so depressing. But there's good news, there's only one thing you have too much of, and that's... Sin. What? what, what? That's right. If you want to return to your Edenic existence, you just need to throw off the sin that ensnares you. Oh, and also throw off sleep. And, like, 90% of your daily caloric intake. Well, that doesn't sound very fun. Oh, it's not. But there are some nice perks. You can cast out demons. Oh, and when animals attack your crops, you can just scold them, just yell at them, and they'll totally run off. Wow! Free pest control to boot! I'm sold! Where do I sign up? At your local consignment shop, my friend. Sell all your goods and give them to the poor. Monastic self-denial. Take up your cross and follow your Lord into fresh, smooth skin. All kidding aside, if you have spent any time around monks, you may notice how remarkably slow their aging can be compared to others. It's pretty common for monks to die of old age rather than cancer or stress-related diseases. A simple life of prayer and work, and a fairly modest diet, is actually quite good for the body. Well, after impressing them all with his beauty routine, Antony then immediately went out to the crowd and began to heal those who were sick. As you might imagine, with powers like that, Antony quickly became a sought-after teacher and guide for aspiring monks. A track record of miracle working is good for that. Athanasius describes him as a patient teacher who never let his ego out of check, no matter how much adulation he got. Athanasius also records a long speech Antony is supposed to have given to the monks. It's too long to reproduce here, but the basic points of the speech are as follows. Enduring your discipline, practice daily death to sin, and don't let the demons tempt you off the path of righteousness. Antony has quite a bit of practice resisting demons at this point, and so he goes on at length about the various tricks and wiles that he has seen so that the other monks won't be taken in by them. Not all was light and ease, of course. During his teaching years, Antony faced the beginning of the great persecution. Athanasius tells us that he was eager to die for his faith, but didn't wish to turn himself in. You see, Christians had long said that seeking out martyrdom was actually a form of suicide, and therefore a sin. So Antony was not going to commit suicide, but he did move into the city of Alexandria and made no secret of his regular visits to Christians in the prisons. Apparently, the governor, upon hearing of Antony's reputation, decreed that no monk was to be arrested for fear that a riot would begin. Antony was perhaps disappointed not to become a martyr, but he was able to do a lot of good for those who did. But eventually, Antony began to get weary of his life in the crowds, and God showed him the way to a desert mountain on which he would make his home. Antony happily lived on this mountain, seeing those who came to him, but generally being content with just living his monastic life and not bothering anyone. In fact, he was bothered whenever he thought he was bothering someone. For example, Antony noticed that some travelers were going out of their way to bring him loaves of bread. Now, the desert is a dangerous place, and going out of your way can be a really big risk. So instead, Antony got a hold of some seeds and farming equipment and began to make his own bread. Antony had just struck upon an idea that would become central to monastic practice, work and prayer. Ora et labora, as you may know it. See, monasteries are supposed to be self-sustaining operations. The brothers or sisters provide for their own needs through their labor. And the idea goes back to Antony's concern here that of not being a burden on anyone. Now, I think this is a fascinating ideal for many reasons, but one of the main ones is that in this case, Antony's spiritual growth required him to spend less time focused on prayer, not more. Early in his life, Antony had adopted a pretty harsh regimen of bodily denial, and while he maintains a strict discipline for his whole life, he winds up taking a slightly more moderate approach he comes to say that the best thing to do is to give the body a bit of time and care so that it can take care of itself. Once you've done that, once it's had enough food, water, rest, well then you're free to give the rest of your time to matters of the spirit. While farming makes it more difficult to pray all the time, it allows him to take care of his body without being a bother to anyone else. For Antony, that is spiritual growth. And I think it's a charmingly human moment, in what sounds like an incredibly superhuman life. Equally human was Antony's insistence on humility and gentleness as core monastic virtues. He counsels his monks to avoid vainglory above all else. If they are having trouble avoiding sin, well, then they should imagine that another monk was watching them. Since we're ashamed of doing the wrong thing in front of somebody else, that will help the monk avoid temptation. As he was dropping this kind of wise counsel on the regular, Antony continued his habit of curing people by praying for them. However, Athanasius is quick to tell us that Antony could not cure by himself, but only through God. Often God would grant Antony's prayers, but sometimes not. And in these cases, Antony would counsel the sick to be patient. And in this, there's another paradox of monastic life that leaps off the pages of this text. Monks are generally a pretty introverted bunch. In fact, the root word for monk is monacos, which tends to mean alone or withdrawn. But Antony's advice to the monks is deeply social. After all, vainglory is a social sin. It's when you care too much what others think of you. He prescribes a social remedy for temptation. What would other people think if they saw what you're doing right now? And, of course, Antony is described in terms of his interactions with other people. That's the paradox at the heart of monastic life. To be alone well, you have to learn how to be in community with others. Perhaps the genius of monastic life is that when you have time to be alone, you have time to really grapple with the petty resentments, jealousies, and anger that lie beneath our daily lives, and will disrupt our inner lives if we leave them unchecked. Only when you are in right relation with your neighbor can you be in right relation with yourself. And perhaps, Antony would add, only when you take time to be alone can you really learn how to be in community. It's a paradoxical back and forth, but I think a very true one. Now, all throughout this time of ministry, the demons continue to harass Antony, and they are about as effective at it as an average mugger is against Superman. They tempt him. He refuses. They possess his monks. He casts them out. They possess small children while Antony is on a boat and they make the poor kid smell like sulfur when nobody can get away from the smell and everybody's nice time is just being ruined and everybody thinks that it's just the fish going bad but Antony knows better and exercises the kid right then and there. Just another day in the life of a friendly, neighborhood, wonder-working super monk. Another of Antony's wondrous powers, apparently, was prophecy. Specifically, prophesying about heresies. And if you have been listening to this podcast at all, you probably know exactly which heresy Athanasius is going to tell us about. Athanasius tells us that Antony never, 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 never had any truck with those Miletians, no sir, not with those schismatics who've been bugging Athanasius the whole time. But even more, Antony apparently prophesied about the rise of Arius. The story goes that he was at work one day and fell into some sort of a trance in which he moaned and convulsed. And then he explained the whole dream to his compatriots as follows, and I quote, Wrath is about to overtake the church, and she is about to be handed over to men who are like irrational beasts. For I saw the table of the Lord's house, and in a circle all around it stood mules kicking the things within, just like the kicking that might occur when beasts leap around rebelliously. Surely you knew how I groaned, for I heard a voice saying, My altar shall be destroyed. Quote. You may be a little suspicious about the stories that Athanasius tells about his Antony. You would be in good company. Most scholars think that Athanasius is exaggerating the details of Antony's life, and this particular vignette is a big part of why. The idea that Antony just happened to prophecy the rise of Arius and Nicaea's opponents, and that the fiercest anti arian in the world is the only one who recorded it, it just seems a little too good to be true. In fact, Athanasius in general has a reputation for not being particularly judicious in separating fact from fiction, and passages like this are a big reason why. Now, I happen to be among those who think Athanasius is doctoring the record here, However, I don't want to overstate my case. Antony lived in Egypt in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Even for a monk, it was impossible not to have heard of the Miletians or of Arius, and it was impossible not to have an opinion about them. And Antony does seem to have preached in favor of Athanasius and Alexandria from time to time. So I do buy that Antony was pretty firmly on Athanasius' side. I just don't think he was out there prophesying the whole thing. Regardless of the truth of that, Athanasius has one more larger-than-life story to tell us, and it's about how Antony died. One day, Antony came down from his mountain home to talk to the brothers who were living lower on the mountain. He said to them, This is the last visitation I shall make to you. Now it is time for me to perish, for I am nearly a 105 years old. Whether you think this is part of Antony's powers of precognition, or simply a recognition that his time was coming, I will leave to you. Antony then spent a lot of time bothering the brothers to make sure that they would actually bury him instead of wrapping his body in linens and leaving it in the house like a bunch of Egyptians did. I mean, Jesus was buried in a tomb, so why would Antony want anything different? Once sufficiently persuaded that the monks would respect his wishes, Antony gave a final discourse in which he warned the monks to avoid heresy and live in peace. Then he passed from this life and into the next. Thus ends the tale of Antony the Great, respected monk, profound teacher, and probably the man who did more to establish the legend of desert monasticism than any other person. What do we make of this larger-than-life figure, and what does he have to tell us about the Christological controversy that we have been following? Well, most importantly, Antony provided the figures we have been studying with inspiration. For those living in the world Constantine and his children made, Christianity was the religion of the powerful and privileged. Poor people still flocked to the churches too, of course, but they tended not to be in positions of power, and they weren't really the ones getting written about in the history books. And all people, poor and rich, were free to practice their religion without fear of persecution. And this is a rather uncomfortable thing for a religion whose sacred text tells its follower to expect hardship and suffering. Jesus told his followers that they should not expect to be treated better than him, and he rather famously had a bad time of it with the Roman Empire. What would a 4th century Christian living in that same empire make of the fact that they were more likely to become a governor than be sent to the gallows? Monks like Antony provided a way of navigating that conflict. For the monks were suffering hardship and deprivation. They were still persecuted, not by the Roman Empire, but by the demons that haunted the desert and could inflict real physical harm, as we saw in this story. Perhaps as a result of their proximity to that struggle, the monks also appear to have had miraculous powers. It may be true that Athanasius has exaggerated some of the superheroic aspects of Antony's life, but he is not the only one to attribute miracles to the monks. Accounts of the period are unanimous in claiming that monks could heal the sick, they could exercise demons, they could see the innermost secrets of the human heart. Now, most people who heard of the monks did not walk out into the desert to join them in their spiritual quest. But they did go out and visit them, and thereby hoped to gain contact with what seemed like a purer, more ancient style of religion. And they took comfort in knowing that at least some Christians were fighting the good fight. It gave them hope that their faith had not lost its way, even as it had found its place in the life of the Roman Empire. Because the monks were renowned for their holiness and proximity to the divine world, ecclesiastical officials sought their support. After all, monks were so close to God that they had to know what was up with this whole trinity thing, right? It is no coincidence that Athanasius chose to write up a biography of Antony in the middle of the Nicene controversy. It is also no coincidence that Athanasius has Antony refusing fellowship with the Arians three times. In many ways, bishops like Athanasius are trying to shore up their own institutional authority by augmenting it with the charismatic authority of the monks. When we introduced the monks all the way back in episode 3, I pointed out that it is hard to be a bishop and expect people to listen to you when there are other people out there being a better Christian than you. But if you can get those people to back your authority, well, that solves the problem, doesn't it? Thus were the monks often courted by rival parties hoping to get their stamp of approval. Athanasius and his opponents very much among them. And, of course, Antony's significance includes the fact that the monastic movement he helped supercharge has endured, even down to this present day. Monks and nuns have left their mark on the church, in their liturgies, their buildings, and their unique modes of life. While we can see their influence especially clearly from the vantage point of history, even the people of their own day knew how important the monks could be. Especially as the three wannabe monks known as the Cappadocian Fathers entered the world stage to take us to our final destination on the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltarmag.com.